Welcome to Season 2 of the CandyCast Podcast. I'm Daryl Kieser, CEO of CandyBox Marketing, and during this season, I'll be interviewing CEOs from various industries that grew rapidly during the pandemic. During these podcasts, I'll be trying to find out how they rose to the top while many of their competitors shut their doors. Grab your favorite candy, sit back, and enjoy. In this episode, Mufus Chowdhury, Senior Brand Manager at CandyBox Marketing, is actually going to be interviewing me about the last season, what we learned from the five different CEOs that I spoke to about becoming resilient in times of crisis. Enjoy. We are at the season finale of season two of the CandyCast podcast. Daryl, you have been the interviewer and host of every episode this season, and we figured as a way to wrap up this beautiful season, it's an opportunity to change seats, or as one of my favorite CEOs in the world, Michael Scott says, how to turn tables. Yes. We are here today. We're going to turn some tables. I wanted to first get your thoughts on it. You know, I was, uh, I was scrolling through my Instagram feed trying to remember the last time we sat down and did a recording, and to my surprise, it was September 2020 when you and I got together wearing a bandana around our mouths, barely able to speak, and in a very muffled format, we were able to record a great podcast episode. And here we are today, masked off, um, completely in a in a much more relaxed environment. I can't say we're fully there, but we're getting there. But in many ways, I feel like that representation is a symbolism of what this season has been about, which is about mm-hmm. individuals that were going through this awkward yet uncomfortable environment and now almost like they're able to unmask themselves and breathe. And you've been able to really share that in this season. And I remember when I talked to you about it at the very beginning of the season and we discussed like, hey, what is the theme of the season? You really wanted to go all in on the conversation around the pandemic, around the conversation of resilience and being able to adapt to the environment. What made you want to focus on this specific topic for season two? Yeah, I... I think the thing that um, uh, upset me during the pandemic was, um, uh, if I can almost go a little bit deep into like the belief of fatalism. So it was just like business owners started to take uh, news as their guide of of what to do. Um, uh, when you know when you meet with different business owners, people would just kind of like blame market conditions, blame what was going on, and and like no doubt, like we all went through a really difficult two years. Uh, and there's hardships that are outside of our control, and you know we we call it the uh, you know the the macroeconomic factors, um, but but I, I feel like a lot of them use it as like a death sentence on their own business of just saying, well you know it, we're we're well meaning, but this happened to us, and although um, this has been one of the most trying times for businesses in you know um, in in this century, I don't believe in fatalism. I don't believe that. You just have to take things as they are, and uh, and you're just dealt a hand, and and that's it. And um, uh, there's a a book um, uh, by I think I think it's Vern Harnish, and they talk about return on luck, and you know in regards to um, you know a lot of businesses get lucky in some areas, and then there's also like uh, ROC like return on crisis, and other businesses go through major crises and and crises, and and what happens is that like things happen, right? Things happen to your business, things happen to your customers, things happen to your products, but it's about what we do with that. And there's so many businesses that were during that during the pandemic, they went under or, 
didn't really um, respond adequately. And unfortunately, they're not with us today. And yet at the exact same time, some of their competitors are thriving. Uh, during the pandemic, I saw a lot of my competition went out of business. And, uh, and I kept looking around thinking, am I missing something? Like, why are they going out of mm -hmm. business? I was speaking to one um, uh, agency owner and he, uh, all they did was video. And they're like, yeah, like, you know, we went under because of the pandemic. And I really held my tongue because we tripled their video department during the right. pandemic. And I'm thinking, what, like, what were you doing? And so um, I chose five resilient leaders uh, to interview during the pandemic to kind of get their take on how they were doing so well, although the competition was struggling and uh, it was eye-opening. It was pretty cool. What was really fascinating is that these CEOs are not nearly in the same industry. You know, we have mm -hmm. we have one that was in the pharmaceutical industry, one that we had in the HVAC industry and so forth. So it was really interesting how you didn't just spotlight individuals that were in the same space that may have the same story or the same challenges. You've really given other individuals an opportunity to really put out a thesis that I think you believed in, which is it doesn't matter what industry you're in, there's some few core things that if you really bet all in on those core things, it's going to actually pay off and allow you to be the resilient leader that you can be in this space. I want to kind of dissect that. I want to take a walk down memory lane of the episodes that you've been recording over this season. You've, you've recorded conversations with some incredible leaders in different spaces. And from what I've been hearing, there's very different stories, very different circumstances. The competitors were doing very different things, but somehow they made it on top. What do you think that commonality was? First of all, is there a commonality? Do you find that there is a few overarching themes that if everyone banked on this, it would help out their side of the business, no matter what industry they're in? And if so, what are those traits? Uh, so the first thing that, uh, that I noticed with, with everybody they had interviewed is that they had a plan. They had a plan, they had a plan. They, they, like, they made a strategic plan for what they're going through. They didn't receive um, just whatever the market handed them. They had to have a plan. And so uh, the polar opposite interviews, uh, if you wanna pull out two out of the five is, one, you've got Randy Pilon, CEO of uh, Virox Technologies, and they, um, they underwent rapid growth because they were producing chemicals that actually help with sanitization that were required worldwide for what was going on. But they actually had to have a plan to go 24-7 to, um, to ramp up their production, to, to figure out how they can actually deal with their capacity without completely burning out. And they needed a plan for that. Um, on the other side, you have uh, Marcia Mayhu from Mayhu Incorporated and, uh, and their office design and fit out. And this is during the time that offices weren't needed whatsoever. Uh, you know, like it was literally this mass exodus from the office and they specialized in office design <clears throat> and, and her team made a plan of saying, okay, we have to reimagine the office before people even get back into the office. We need to make the office a safe place. And so they actually came up with their own product line for, you know, plexiglass on desks and they launched their own new product line to, to make that happen. And so you have these two companies that one would, you know, um, would be seen as okay. Well, you're just lucky during the pandemic. But you know, speaking to Randy, it was anything but luck. It was um, a ton of planning and crisis management and figuring stuff out years before the pandemic ever began to deal with that type of um, uh, overwhelming uh, demand. And then on the other side, you have an office design company that says it doesn't matter what our business model was last year. We just have to reinvent ourselves during the pandemic to make sure that we're we're meeting the customers' demand. And so. 
for 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 those two CEOs and everybody in between, it always started with a plan of saying, okay, what does the market need? What do our customers actually require from us? What are the gaps? How can we do it? How can we fill it? And even in the uncomfortable, like we haven't done this before, let's just make a plan to do that. Um, all the other business owners that I've seen that didn't do well didn't create a plan. Hmm. They they were just like, what are the government handouts? Right. Um, how do I apply for the subsidy? Um, you know, when is this thing going to be over? And and they just kind of just took it and they didn't make it through, or a lot of them didn't make it through. And so, you know, it, it seems so rudimentary, but just creating a plan around you know, what the market is doing and having a response rather than just a reaction. Like a reaction is closing your doors and saying, everybody go home. Mm. That's reacting. Sure. You know, you get full points for that. But then what's your response? Like, how are you going to, you know, keep your workplace culture? How are you going to go after those new customers? How are you going to keep growing? And every CEO I talked to that that did well had a plan that was executed on. And that sounds fantastic from even the strategic standpoint. I think about entrepreneurs that are listening to this podcast and they're thinking, do I have the characteristics as a leader to be able to pull this off? And what I thought that was really interesting about your lineup of all-stars that you brought in this season is that it's not like you went out and you look for people that succeeded to bring them in. You have active relationships with these CEOs far before the pandemic happened. It's almost like you could have called it and said, I know these guys are going to be okay because I know the type of leaders that they are. What are those characteristics? Like, What is it that someone like Randy Pilon, Michael Groshmal, and all these incredible leaders have that you would almost say like you could almost bet on them as entrepreneurs that they'd be able to win through these type of battles with resilience? Um, it's so hard to summarize all those amazing people because they're they're all very different. And so it's um, to, to pull in common traits is is a challenging thing because they all lead in different areas. But the, the one thing that I that I see with, um, and I'm going to call them entrepreneurs, even though they, they may just be in one business um, and they're they're in business leadership, some of them part of a bigger leadership team, is that they're they're not okay with the status quo and they're constantly changing. And so those people that kind of bet on a business model and just park themselves there and just saying, well, this is our business model, this is what we do, and we're just going to kind of keep turning the wheel. Um, those people don't make it. But those people that are constantly like, okay, what's happening right now? Where's our customers? How can we respond? Like the people that are willing to go through rapid change are winning. Like they're just winning. And we look at the pace of evolution of businesses and the fact that businesses used to be successful for long periods of time. And now they're very short windows that businesses are successful. If you take a look at um, businesses that are in like the top 500 uh, corporations in in the U.S. and Canada, and you know, and top leading agencies, the the lifespan of winning companies is becoming shorter and shorter, and so things are turning over faster. So things are changing faster. So if you don't change, you're going to die very quickly. You take a look at Ford. Uh, Ford just recently announced that they're splitting into two companies. One is focused on the combustion uh, combustion engine, and you know f- uh, fossil fuel vehicles, and the other is EVs. And they're doing that because they know that um, fossil fuel cars are going away, and they cannot change fast enough in that existing structure that they literally needed mm. to take to create a new company to undergo these changes and what's going to be happening. This is breakneck speeds, and so. You know, even older companies are recognizing we have to shed um, what we used to do in order to get on to the next thing. Uh, if you look at the example of lobsters, 
uh, lobsters have certain size claws, and at a certain point of their lifespan, they actually need to shed their old old claws and grow new ones because they need to kill bigger things so that they can eat, so that they can live. If they don't shed the small claws, they die. It cannot continue to serve them. And every single time I'm talking to a leader that's going to that's going to do well. They do not rest on their successes of yesterday. They're always planning for the new claws, the new models, the new customers of to- of tomorrow, period. Um, and uh, and I know the ones that are going to be successful. Even when we were talking with R- Randy Pilon, his entire company is around this one chemical called uh, accelerated hydrogen peroxide, AHP. And it's been top of the market for 20 years. They've got patents on it and it works. It works incredibly well. And yet when he was here, he was like, nope, citric acid. We are building a new mm. formula based on citric acid. And I'm thinking, you don't need to build a, like a, a new formula. Like your existing formula is amazing, but they are never okay with the status quo. And and he was talking about the benefits of using citric acid to uh, disinfect things. And, uh, you know, get ready for Randy 2025. Like, you know, Virox is going to continue to win because they continue to change. I love the humility that they need to have to actually say what I have that's working isn't always going to work. And I need to keep looking at what works better, which I think also makes it difficult for the competitors to keep up because you Mm -hmm. just don't know what the next move is going to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you sit down and you do these interviews, you're constantly sharing their stories and asking them questions. But the truth is we've gone through a little bit of a roller coaster ourselves. And I think this is a one of those points where we hear frequently about the critique that social media gets about relationships, right? Like relationships, you're showing your highlights. You don't actually know what's happening behind the scenes. So it looks like a healthy relationship. You know, we've had a lot of healthy, positive announcements. And we talked a lot about the the accolades and the successes that we've been getting. But the truth is, we've gone through a little bit of that ourselves over the last few years. And being that you've been discussing other entrepreneurs' stories and giving them an opportunity to shed light on their situation. I want to also use this episode to talk a little bit about the challenges that we've had as an agency at Candybox. Can you share a little bit about what the last two, three years has looked like for us? First and foremost, the challenges that we had, the uncertainty that we were going in with, and then I want to kind of talk about how we came out on the other side. Yeah. I mean, there was... Um, uh uh, it's it's so hard to like look back and and understand all the challenges that we went through um, because it was so quick. It changed day to day. Uh, the first thing that we we found was an issue was just cash flow. Like we literally, as a marketing agency, we need cash coming in. We had full time staff. We committed to not laying people off. And most businesses have like four to six weeks of cash flow sitting in their bank, and uh, and that's it. And a lot of our customers weren't saying, well, we can't afford your services. They're saying, like, we can't even cut you a check. Like, we're not even in the office to do this. Like, the, these processes came down to a grinding halt. And um, uh, once again, going back to, like, a strategic plan, um, I always planned that we would have three months in the bank. Three months, you know, in case of a rainy day, in case something happened, that we can continue paying people. And uh, let me tell you, uh, if we didn't have those three months, a lot of us wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. a lot of the agencies were closing the door simply because of cash flow. They're letting their people go. We were in the process of hiring those people. And so I, I know it seems like such a simple rudimentary thing, but just having a plan of we may hit a crisis one day in which we're going to need three months of cash flow actually paid off. Right. And so, you know, um, the biggest issue that businesses are having right now is attracting and retaining talent. And let me tell you, it's really hard to attract and retain talent when 
you know, uh, when the world kind of started shutting down and and stuff was um, people were going through crisis, and then they just laid off a bunch of people. Let me tell you, those people don't have good that those companies don't always have the best credibility. And uh, and although I understand that there's reason for it, and some com- companies are forced, and and it was months and months before they can get their people back. We were incredibly proud to not lay a single person off during the pandemic and retain our talent. Um, that was uh, one of the biggest issues that we found. And the second one was, was um, we had a number of models in regards to in-person collaboration. So Launch48, one of our offerings where we build websites with our clients over a few days, we had our clients physically in our studios and we just migrated everything online. To be honest, it would have been a huge challenge except for we had a crisis plan um, back in February of 2020 uh, when like it was almost it was almost laughable of thinking like the world may shut down. And uh, I think we called it like like Operation Apocalypse or something yeah. stupid like that. And we laughed through the plan, but we prepared by like we secured all of our Zoom phone and you know licenses before all this happened. Uh, we moved a lot of processes online uh, like right away. We we kind of rejigged the company so that if something were to happen, that we can just flip a switch. And on March 12th, we did. And so um, we did go through a couple problems with customers, but overall, we we were kind of ready. And so it we we didn't skip a beat uh, in regards to servicing our customers, helping people grow, and 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 uh, executing on our campaigns. There was nothing that um, really shut candy box marketing down this month you were also featured on the edge magazine which spotlights some of the top leaders in the industry and you were on the front cover where they did a cover story to talk about your entrepreneurship journey in this interview they asked you about the adjustment and the adaptation that you made during the pandemic and you talked quite heavily about the versatility of that remote environment that you created i think this is an interesting topic because in our industry in the world of marketing and advertising collaboration, in-person meetings, um, working together in a space where we need to record videos and record audio, uh, whiteboard sometimes to get a strategy out there, pitch ideas right in front of a client. We're in a space where there's so much demand of being right in front of the person that we're working with or working for. You enforced a very strong and effective remote environment that not only allowed the team members to work in full efficiency, but still have that same culture feeling that's that we're really proud of in our agency. Can you talk a little bit about your explanation and the mindset that you had into making this transition from an in-person studio into a remote slash versatile environment? Yeah, and you know what? Like, um, we benefited from the fact that we've actually always been a hybrid company, uh, and uh, this goes back to to planning and preparation, and, and let's also call it dumb luck. Um, but we, I started Candybox uh, as a purely remote business. Even when we had an office, we didn't require everybody to, to come in. Um, and so you have to understand that like a, a 10% remote company, if 10% of your workforce is remote, you have to have a 100% remote strategy because you need to make sure that they're still involved, that they can still access documents, that they're still meeting with clients and, and interacting with other people. And so we always had that as part of our DNA. And so if it's 10% remote, 50% or 100%, it's the same strategy. It's it's recognizing that not everybody is in the office, not everybody's in the studio. So we have to actually make plans to engage staff from home. And so like a lot of companies, I would say they they were doing crisis work. 
right? Uh, we had uh, banks and lenders and things like that almost shut down because they just didn't have a lot of their processes that they can do from home. So they were kind of forced into it. Um, we were like that from the beginning. And I think that there is, there is never an excuse for not having a remote strategy. Um, the, the second thing I would say is that people can do remote work, um, but can they do it well? You know, people can do remote culture, but can you do it well? And so we just got to be intentional. If everybody's working from home, then you actually have to be intentional about your remote uh, culture. You actually have to figure out how to converse with people online, how to reward people online, how to do those things really well. And everybody was complaining about Zoom meetings and being like, oh, this sucks. And I don't like video and I don't like this and I don't like that. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? You're you're going to fail. Like with that attitude, like I like imagine if you were just constantly showing up to work in the same way and being like, oh, I hate board meetings and I, I hate this TV and I hate the people in my office and I hate the water cooler and you're the CEO. Everyone else is going to hate it too. Like you are going to set the attitude of what's going on. And mm. the fact that all these businesses really went into remote working, kicking and screaming. Uh, now, I know it's not like a walk in the park and I've complained about Zoom as well too, but you have to just say, okay, guys, this is the way that we're doing work. So let's just make the best of it. Um, and, uh, and you know, we had the benefit of, of starting off this way. Um, and we just tried to get people's feedback to say, okay, guys, this sucks. How are we going to do it better? Like, how are we going to make this awesome? And so we were doing, you know, we were making pizzas from home and doing, uh, uh, I don't even know what other things we were doing from home, but we just tried everything possible from online gaming to trivia nights to, to everything just to, to make it fun. You also had that super special taco day that gave people a, a feeling of being back in person, even if it's for a moment right beside our upcoming studio. So I thought that was a really cool um, opportunity for them to really connect with other individuals. There, there's never a bad time for a taco truck. True. Just going to throw that out true. there. Yeah, very true. Um, and we also had an environment where, you know, looking from the inside, I can tell you that there was a lot of interesting things that I saw in play. One of them being um, empowering the team members, which is something that you really did to get creative about how they can service their clients better, mm -hmm. which is an interesting point, which is the fact that the CEO doesn't need to always solve every micro problem is trusting the team that you've built to give them an opportunity to come up with new creative solutions. I specifically remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, which now feels like a decade ago, um, it was an interesting challenge. You know, you used the video as an example for other agencies that they just weren't able to execute on the video service that they were offering. We were in that same boat. We had mm -hmm. a video service. We had clients that were looking for uh, opportunities to speak in front of the camera with us being in the same room with them. We even had it scheduled it out before we could foresee all the challenges. Yet somehow we found a way to get together with our team and discuss creative ways. You know, we sat down and talked about is there a way that we could guide them and arm them with the equipment that they needed and ship products over to them. I remember we were shipping out ring lights and paying it out of our pocket, just giving them free equipment that they could set up and then coaching them and how to film themselves. And I think that that is really where it got interesting, where you didn't just come up with solutions the moment you had a challenge. You started building a team of people that you trusted could come up with these solutions if needed in the future, which makes me think that, you know, replace pandemic with any challenge, any blank. And it's still, you still trust that this team has the capabilities of thinking outside of the box and being able to navigate through that. So let's talk a little bit about hiring. Right, because I, I think that's a big part of it where you didn't necessarily hire because there were challenges. You're constantly hiring to be proactive. What is your hiring strategy? What is something that you're doing 
that has allowed you in the pandemic to grow the business to what it is today? Yeah, so, I mean, we're always hiring. Uh, we're always hiring. We're always hiring. If you're listening to this podcast, apply online. <laughs> um, you know, right now we're hiring a new person every seven business days. And, um, and we just recognize that as an agency, our value is expert marketers. And we gather expert, market expert marketers. They do expert work. They do expert work. We're going to get better clients. And so, you know, our strategy in hiring is, is really allowing our people to speak for us. Um, during the pandemic, a lot of people have resigned and gone on to other places. People from Candy Box even resigned and went on to different opportunities or were moving. Um, but one thing that rang true is that people had a, um, you know, people call it the great resignation. Um, I personally like the term the great reflection. People are saying, do I enjoy where my life is going? Uh, do I enjoy work? Like if, if I'm logging into Zoom here, I can easily log into Zoom somewhere else. And in that great reflection, um, people want to work to, uh, for a place that has purpose, uh, that has a good culture, that they're treated well, that there's opportunities for growth. And these are all things that we hold um, as like high values at Candy Box. We, our culture is our number one, right? We, we, we don't allow people just to be jerks here. Um, we hire the right people that, that uh, work well together, that um, are innovative, that are supportive of one another. Um, we're also uh, you know, a workplace that believes in work-life balance. Um, we believe in having a purpose before just you know, making a buck. And so during the pandemic, we allowed that to really speak for us. Um, people referred a ton of people to work for Candy Box that are actually here. And, uh, and we just started getting talent. And uh, there was a ton of people that are in jobs that during the pandemic, their companies didn't do well. You know, they treated people poorly. Uh, they didn't handle remote, remote work very well. Um, they weren't rewarding people. They didn't, you know, provide career paths or they had a terrible culture and were just, uh, you know, blaming one another. And uh, a lot of those people resigned and found other places. Now, here's the fun part is that the great resignation, th those people are working. Like they didn't just like resign from the workplace. Right. They're going somewhere else. And so for agencies like ours, um, I would call it, you know, the great attraction of just being like, hey, we've got a great culture. We've got purpose. We've got career paths. We've got all these different things. We take care of our people and we have work-life balance. Come join Candy Box. Um, and, uh, and I don't want to speak... You know, um, I don't want to brag too much because we did have people resign as well, too, and they were moving provinces, and and there was a lot of change during this time, and we've learned some good lessons ourselves. But the reality is people are going somewhere else, and it's it, the big question is, are you that company that people hate and are moving away from, or are you that company that people love and they're moving towards? Mm -hmm. And we, we did our best to be in that second camp. Every CEO wants to claim that their place is a great place to work. But in our situation, we can actually say that because this year we were spotlighted by the Globe and Mail as one of the top 10 great places to work in this entire country. And I think that's something that's very difficult to achieve. I mean, let alone get acknowledged for a great place to work by your team, but being spotlighted nationally. What does someone need to take into consideration? You talked very much about your strategy, and I, I think it made a lot of sense for the environment that we're in and the culture that we've created. But what are some more general tips that someone could take into consideration and not just the hiring, but to create an environment that the team can leave and brag to their friends and family that this company that they work for is a great place to work? 
Yeah, I, I think a ton of companies are, uh, first off, we were we were humbled and surprised when we got this, um, maybe more surprised. Um, I have to be honest, when we when we found out we were top 10 in Canada, I was shocked, like I was stunned. And because this can't be a strategy, you can't just apply for it and like fake it with numbers or anything like that. Like they actually pulled our staff, they looked at our policies, they looked at um, everything that we're offering, like they, they, uh, they, they looked through all the dirty laundry, right? And um, when we when we got the award, I, I realized you know what this is not something that a company can just like uh, achieve with with a, a couple key initiatives and say okay you know we're gonna do this one thing and then we're gonna be a great place to work. Uh, yeah, we we were absolutely shocked. We were shocked when we got that award, like top ten companies in Canada uh, to work for. Um, I I they kept calling me and saying like hey you gotta you know you've got to respond. There's PR and and I. You know, I I didn't even read the email properly, and and so we were so shocked to find out we were a great place to work. Um, but I I feel like uh, for companies out there, it's it's really really easy to be a great place to work, and yet it's something you got to work on every day. Mm. There's no key initiative that is going to make you a great place to work. Like if your key initiative is okay, well to be a great place to work, we've got to be more inclusive, and so we've got to hire more women, and 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 we've got to hire more like visible minorities. And if, mm. if that's the case, you almost have to ask yourself, well, why haven't you been doing that all, all along? Like, why, why does not being a jerk have to be a key initiative? Like, that's not good. It actually has to go down to your core beliefs as a company. So like, when I started Candybox, um, I wanted to have a great job personally. And I also wanted to create good jobs for everybody else, because that's only fair. And, uh, and so we you know, we'd institute things that are now becoming trends. Like uh, just recently in the province of Ontario, where we are, where we are located, the government just mandated and said, you know what, employers should not be able to expect people to be on their emails past 5 p.m. Like it's nine to five. And that wasn't news that spread around Candybox and saying, oh, look, you know, they're, they finally passed this legislation. Right. That wasn't news to us because that's just what we expect. Like that's that's part of our culture, right? We believe in workplace culture, so at 5:05 p.m., it's a ghost town here, um, and and you know our ethos has always been: you have a life, you know, you're a human. Um, the other thing that's been happening recently is they're just saying, okay, well, you know, people have to hire more visible minorities, and and it's like for my first two hires, if I think about it, were visible minorities, mm-hmm. and my first two managers was male and female, um, and that's not because that was an initiative; <laughs> that's right. because like. I don't know. They're they're the best people for the job. Um, they're incredible talent, and uh, and and so we can't just solve these things of great places to work. It has to actually be what you believe. You have to believe in equality. You have to believe that people are humans and not robots and shouldn't be working like twelve hour days. Um, you have to believe that um, in order to lead a company, you should yell praises as opposed to criticism. And uh, if you're constantly yelling criticism at people and uh, berating your staff and putting people down and hiring and firing and firing like a ton and, you know, calling your staff a, as soon as there is a financial uh, crisis, then, you know, what that award is is never going to be right. something on your shelf. And, um, you know, these are these are just things that I sincerely believe when I was laid off in 2008, I thought this sucks like the, like the corporate world sucks. And so I started Candybox because I just didn't want to get fired again. I didn't want to work in a toxic environment that at the first sign of financial trouble that people start getting let go. And I'm glad that now um, there's proof behind a lot of the stuff that, that we've been building that 
if we just treat people well, business is going to go well. And so um, I, I don't feel like I, I answered your 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 question. You you definitely have. I think what you did a really good job in highlighting is that clear dichotomy in a culture, which is not as much about the state of doing, but the state of being. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not about strategically implementing items just so that you could say you have a good culture, but being that every single day and breathing that. And I, I think that was really well highlighted with the fact that these were already things we had in place without actually having a boardroom meeting and saying, how do we put it in place? Mm-hmm. And I think that was very much represented. And, you know, when it comes to human characteristics, you know, you go through resilience, you come out and you come out better, but you also come out different. And I, I think it's also worth highlighting what you feel might be different yet better for the way Candybox facilitates going forward. You know, we've gone through this insane like brick wall that came in our direction. We very carefully found a way to navigate through it. How do we make sure we avoid the brick wall? What have you done mm-hmm. now that yeah. you feel like would be different about the way Candybox moves forward? Um, I, I think the biggest thing that, that we did and that companies need to do um, is listen to your team. Like listen to, and I don't mean like an annual survey that gets, you know, sent out by a third party and you get the results in three months and put it up on a board and start making plans around it. But by the time you get that annual like survey in, it's too late. The people that were pissed off and that were mistreated are already gone. Uh, the problems that you have have probably gotten worse, and uh, and and it's over. Like it's it's basically over. Um, we've implemented uh, like different softwares that actively listen to every team member about every area, even areas that we're not strong in and it's hard to hear about. Um, And it's constantly pulling people on a regular basis so that we know what the pulse is of the organization. Right now we're 38 full-time people um, and growing. And as you get bigger, it becomes harder and harder to hear every voice. Um, But if you prioritize hearing everybody's voice on every topic all the time, like not annually, not quarterly, but weekly, um, then you learn. Uh, We're not a great place to work because um, I or anybody here had great ideas and initiatives. Um, Most of what we've been doing is responding to what people have said. Like, and and that can be in any area. It could be from uh, stress levels to compensation to, um, hey, we you know, we're, we're overworked right now and feeling burnt out. And so we implemented half day Fridays last summer, like, like everything, every good idea that has happened at Candybox marketing has probably originated from listening to somebody that has given us some, some great feedback. Fantastic. And, um, before wrapping up the interview, I think it would be a huge disservice to our listeners. If as someone speaking to a marketer, we didn't talk a little bit about some marketing advices that entrepreneurs could bank on. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on where you think attention should be put towards in this coming year and what you also feel like maybe didn't perform as well as we thought we would. Um, mm. One that comes to mind, I, I think we talked quite heavily about Clubhouse in our last few um, our last few webinar or and, and podcast conversations. Do you feel like the things that were getting hyped up in the last couple of years lived up to the expectation? And where do you think people should be putting more of their attention to going forward? So in regards to areas of focus for marketing, if it's not already on your radar, um, it, it needs to be, which is uh, recruitment marketing. Like we, we talk about the fact that there's, uh, there's talent issues in the industry, uh, that people are leaving jobs and everything, but, but we have to grow our companies and we, we need people to do it. I, I, I very much subscribe to Richard Branson's way of thinking of, 
um, take care of your team and they'll take care of your customers. And, uh, and so if you're not really taking care of your team or attracting the right team, uh, forget about your customers. Like it's, you're never going to actually service them well. You're never going to do, you're never going to innovate. You're never going to grow, period. And, uh, and people just spend so much time marketing to their customers. And we haven't quite um, evolved to the point where mo- most companies realize that they need to market to their employees uh, or to their potential employees. And so uh, doing recruitment strategies, recruitment videos, and even redesigning your website and the stuff that people find out mm. about you so that you can showcase that. And, and by the way, if you don't like what they're finding, then you need to internally change. If you can't get a couple good testimonials from your own staff together, um, it's not that's about... A problem. F- yeah, that's a huge problem, yeah. okay? So uh, recruitment marketing has to be on people's radar. Um, and, uh, you know, when whenever we think of marketing, we're always thinking about customer first, and we need to start moving recruitment into that mix. In regards to platforms, uh, we, we are both huge fans of Clubhouse. And the reason why... Uh, I've kind of waned a little bit about that is that I really thought it was going to take off more than it did, but it just, it grew to a point and then it, it didn't continue. And so it was a fad, um, you know, audio was a fad, but it was part of a greater trend that, that will continue, which is just audio marketing. And so, uh, podcasting is getting hotter and hotter in the market. Apple's doubling down on it. Spotify is still, um, making some big moves in the space. And, uh, and even Apple, like Apple first really came out with podcasting, like even think of the word podcasting, right. like iPod, like, like Apple was the originator, but they kind of missed the boat where Spotify was really investing in a bunch of podcasters. And now they're finally coming right. back. So you think uh, an application like Clubhouse might be too early, right? Like maybe, maybe it just hasn't picked up the traction we were hoping it would. I, I, think, I think it was, um, I think it is a fantastic idea, but it wasn't fast enough to bring it all to fruition. So I think that um, places like Spotify and Apple are going to take those items into their platforms, like the ideas, if you want to say borrow, steal, whatever, Hmm. are into their ideas, and it's going to evolve. But here's the biggest thing. Just like websites back in like the year 2000, everybody's coming out with a website, everybody's coming out with a podcast. How are you going to get your listeners? If you build it, they will come. Only works at the beginning of a lot of these technologies. And, uh, and so if you're first in, you can get a whole bunch of market share. If you had the first website that sold to something specifically, you get a whole bunch of market share. But then everybody enters the market, and then it becomes about the marketing. And so uh, do I think that podcasting is going to continue its trajectory? Absolutely. But I feel as though that people are going to have to work harder at what is their marketing strategy to grow the podcast as opposed to just throwing out their podcast and hoping that people listen to it. So um, – uh, yes, it's going to grow and it's going to be great, um, but no, it's not going to be great for everybody. There's going to be a lot of podcasts that that go into the grave. It's it's in many ways it's like a tool that they need to figure out how to work into their business plan, right? And I think we underestimated the fact that you need to be present there and f- give full attention to this conversation that's taking place in Clubhouse, where in other platforms like podcasting, it could be pre-recorded, it could be on your convenience, it could be in different spaces. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's an opportunity to merge the two where you could do a live podcast recording. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's on your schedule, on your time, and it creates contact for content for long-term listening. And it's interesting. The, the example you shared is also a, an example we talked about in the past, which is um, Xerox's invention of the mouse. 
the first time, mm -hmm. right? Xerox owns the mouse. Like, they mm -hmm. came up with it, but they didn't market it. It didn't become their thing, and other platforms like Apple ran with it and made it theirs. So it's it's fascinating when you think about the being first is not enough. It's yeah. being first and then figuring out how to bring it out to market. Yeah, Apple, I mean, Apple classically, I, I like, I'm a huge Apple fan, but, you know, they'll, they'll take an existing technology, rebrand it, and then release it pretending like it's new, and then everybody gets on board. You know, it's like FaceTime is the most hilarious thing. It's like video calling has been around for 20 right. years and Skype and all this stuff, but they're just like, let's FaceTime. And then you're like, okay, they just they just took the market. And now it's know? a verb. And now it's a verb, yeah. yeah. And so um, it's not about just the product, it's about the marketing. I love that, that's great. Um, what else? What else have you seen that hasn't worked out or has potential to work out coming out into the other side? So the other thing I think about as you're very heavily invested in the speaking industry, we saw a big shift happen. A lot of events that had venues booked, massive conferences, thousands of people scaled back and said, hey, we're going to do a virtual event instead to really deliver on that event promise that we gave. But we know there's pros and cons. Pro, probably the fact that they saved a lot of expenses that would have gone into the venue. Cons, people sitting in their rooms, maybe in their pajamas, watching it from a TV screen rather than what would have been a live environment. Where do you feel like the event space is headed? Uh, so I think that a lot of virtual events failed over the pandemic because they tried to replicate what their in-person event was online. And so they kind of had this framework of this is exactly what the event was like. And so let's just like digitize everything. And it's like, um, <clears throat> I'm not sure people like that. I, I didn't see it um, be extremely successful, but smaller events, micro events, um, webinars, that stuff, they're here to stay. And uh, to be honest, I, I think that a lot of conferences and trade shows and stuff like that are just going to come roaring back because people miss it. Um, I miss walking down aisles and seeing stuff that I wasn't ser specifically searching or specifically, um, uh, you know, like clicking into like a certain link and, and going into. Like I like the experience and the smells and, you know, people and and uh, experiential marketing is it's going to really like like hit this. Um, along with that, I think that VR and AR are obviously going to be a part of this, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're going to experiences from home, but the technology is not there yet uh, for everybody to have those VR goggles at home, for everybody to understand what that looks like. And so I think that's the next five years. I think that like our virtual reality and augmented reality experiences are are like as these these things become more accessible, it's going to be pretty cool in what, what these events are going to be able to do. I found it really interesting that the ones that would almost point at their parents and laugh about the fact that they resisted computers and the internet so much, in many ways, they're doing the same thing with the next thing that's coming in. Like mm -hmm. they're saying like VRs that we're going to push it away, um, all these other things that are coming in as new tools, they're going to be the ones that kind of look back and saying like, I wish I invested in it and learned more about it to stay on top. So I think it's interesting to at least stay curious. We can't guarantee that every single one of these things would take off or work the way it's supposed to, but at least being in the know and being involved in some way as a participant will give you the ability to play along, especially if it does take off the way we expect it to. The final question I wanted to ask you was the amount of time you spend with other CEOs in your, in your CEO group that you also talked about in your article. You mentioned that you wouldn't be where you are today if it wasn't for those individuals. I think that's a fascinating topic. And unfortunately, I don't get the privilege of being inside these rooms every day and listening to the conversations that take place. 
Could you share some of the things that you get out of that experience? You know, first, first and foremost, I think entrepreneurs should definitely buddy up with other CEOs in the world to learn more from them. But what do you get out of those experiences that you feel like was incredibly valuable to your success? Um, again, it's uh, hard to summarize, but uh, a couple of years ago, I realized, uh, I think we, like as an agency, reached a certain point and, uh, and I just recognized within my own abilities, I, I couldn't bring us any further. So I either had to be okay with that, stay the same size. Um, my other option was to maybe sell the company to somebody that could bring it to the next uh, phase. Or third, I had to go back to school, like air quotes, school. Like I, I had to learn how to, how to do it. Um, I chose the third option because I wasn't okay with the first two. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's unbelievable what happens when you get into a room with people with a ton of experience. Uh, knowing that entrepreneurship and leadership is is a team sport and it's not something that you can do solo. Um, I don't have what it takes to bring us to the next level. And um, I, I, and I constantly recognize my own uh, faults, my you know, secrecies, my limitations of what I know. And even you know yesterday I met with the group and these are long meetings and uh, and where you get to ask questions and um, you know the the, the years of advice and stuff that that you can take and it's not just about networking and it's not like oh you just need to be connected to somebody and then they're going to introduce you to the next person if you're just talking to ceo just to try to get get a connection you've just bypassed the whole right. like area of wisdom and knowledge and you're just trying to get right to the revenue and that's that's ridiculous you should never join a group just to kind of get connected um although it does help that's that's a footnote to what happens Gaining um, the wisdom of a group of people that have gone before you is one of the most valuable things uh, that any business owner should do. Uh, you can't do it alone. Um, when you start a business, you've got to recognize that you've got to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you uh, because you do not know everything. And those guys that go out there and are so arrogant thinking that they can make it just because they've got a couple good ideas, those guys will burn out quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, but those who understand that uh, they need a council of people or advisors or coaches to help them in things that they have had no experience in. Um, those are the people that are going to be successful. Uh, just period. I'm not. I'm not just trying to like pass off the success to other people, but literally, I, um, you know, uh, small pieces of advice at the right time when you ask the right questions are unbelievable. Um, I there's there's you know if you know the saying there's no such thing as a stupid question. Uh, I don't believe that at all. I think that the smarter the person, the better the question. Interesting. And, uh, and when I meet with uh, these different um, uh, women and men that are, that are in these industries, I spend a lot of time trying to come with really good questions uh, because if you ask the right question, you'll be, you know, you can get some pretty cool answers. Daryl, on behalf of myself and all the listeners, I wanna thank you for the season. I think it's very, very difficult to bring people out here, especially people who've seen a lot of success and talk about downfalls and talk about reinventing and talk about resilience. And I think you've been able to really pull that out of everyone's story along with today's episode, which is your, your story today. I think it's immense amount of value that listeners will get, especially individuals that want to start their business or are struggling at this point, trying to figure out what to do next. What can people expect for season three? I know we have a different location, different environment, probably a different theme because it seems to be the reoccurring thing with CandyCast where every season has its own little animal. 
What is season three looking like in this coming year? So I don't want to give uh, too many spoilers because I'm, I'm pretty excited about what we're lining up, but uh, I'm going to summarize it with three words. All right. First word is growth. Second word is growth. And third word is growth. And so uh, this isn't going to be the season for everybody, but for people that are interested in like rapid growth, crazy growth, uh, with still working 40 hours a week and having things under control, that's what the season is going to be about. It is just going to be about, okay, you know, we've gone through all this stuff, two years of crisis. Let's, let's just move this off the table. We've talked about it. It's done. Let's close the chapter and let's just talk about growth and growing um, insane amounts. Yeah, that's season three. Listeners, see you in season three where we talk about, I don't know, just a hunch, maybe growth. Maybe growth. Really yeah. excited about growth. that. Daryl, thanks again for an incredible season. We'll see you back in season three. Thanks, Mufus. Thank you for listening to this episode of CandyCast. If you like what you've heard, make sure to hit the subscribe button for more sweet conversations. Also, continue the conversation with us on social media by following us on Instagram and Facebook at CandyCast Club. Until next time, thanks again for listening and stay sweet.